Section 8 of Handbook of Home Rule. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Handbook of Home Rule being Articles on the Irish Question. Home Rule and Imperial Unity by Lord Thring. Part 2. Assuming, then, thus much to be proved by the Constitution of the United States, that national unity of the closest description is consistent with complete home rule in the component members of the nation, and by the history of Canada and the British colonial empire, that an imperial tie is sufficient to bind together for centuries dependencies differing in situation, in nationality, in religion, in laws, in everything that distinguishes peoples from one another, and further and more particularly, that the emancipation of the Anglo-Saxon colonies from control in their internal affairs strengthens instead of weakening imperial unity, let us turn to Ireland and inquire whether there is anything in the circumstances under which home rule was proposed to be granted to Ireland, or in the measures intended to establish that home rule, fairly leading to the inference that disruption of the empire or the impairment of imperial powers would probably be a consequence of passing the Irish Government Bill and the Irish Land Bill. And, first, as to the circumstances which would seem to recommend the Irish Home Rule Bill. Ireland, from the very commencement of her connection with England, has chafed under the restraints which that connection imposed. The closer the apparent union between the two countries, the greater the real disunion. The Act of 1800, in words and in law, affected not a union merely, but a consolidation of the two countries. The effect of those words and that law was to give rise to a restless discontent which has constantly found expression in efforts to procure the repeal of the Act of Union and the re-establishment of a national parliament in Dublin. How futile have been the efforts of the British Parliament to diminish by concession or repress by coercion Irish aspirations or Irish discontent it is unnecessary to discuss here. All men admit the facts however different the conclusions which they draw from those facts. What Burke said of America on moving in 1775 his resolution on conciliation with the colonies was true in 1885 with respect to Ireland. The fact is undoubted that under former parliaments the state of America, read for America Ireland, has been kept in continual agitation, everything administered as remedy to the public complaint if it did not produce was at least followed by an heightening of the distemper, until, by a variety of experiments, that important country has been brought into her present situation, a situation which will not miscall, which I dare not name, which I scarcely know how to comprehend in the terms of any description. At length, after the election of 1885, Mr Gladstone and the majority of his followers came to the conclusion that an opportunity had presented itself for providing Ireland with a constitution, conferring on the people of that country the largest measure of self-government consistent with the absolute supremacy of the Crown and the Imperial Parliament and the entire unity of the Empire. A scheme was proposed which was accepted in principle by the representative of the National Party in Ireland as a fair and sufficient adjustment of the Imperial claims of Great Britain and the local claims of Ireland. The scheme was shortly this. A legislative assembly was proposed to be established in Ireland, with power to make all laws necessary for the good government of Ireland. In other words, invested with the same powers of local self-government 
as a colonial assembly. The Irish assembly was in one respect unlike a colonial legislature. It consisted of one house only, but this house was divided into two orders, each of which, in case of differences on any important legislative matter, voted separately. This form was adopted in order to minimise the chances of collision between the two orders, by making it imperative on each order to hear the arguments of the other before proceeding to a division, thus throwing on the dissentient order the full responsibility of its dissent, with a complete knowledge of the consequences likely to ensue therefrom. The clause conferring on the Irish legislature full powers of local self-government was immediately followed by provision accepting, by enumeration, from any interference on the part of the Irish legislature, all imperial powers, and declaring any enactment void which infringed on that provision. This exception, as is well known, is not found in colonial constitutional acts. In them, the restriction of the words of the grant to local powers only has been held sufficient to safeguard the supremacy of the British Parliament and the unity of the Empire. The reason for making a difference in the case of the Home Rule Bill was political, not legal. Separation was declared by the enemies of the bill to be the real intention of its supporters, and destruction of the unity of the empire to be its certain consequence. It seemed well that Ireland, by her representatives, should accept as a satisfactory charter of Irish liberty a document which contained an express submission to imperial power and a direct acknowledgement of imperial unity. Similarly, with respect to the supremacy of the British Parliament, in the colonial constitutions all reference to this supremacy is admitted as being too clear to require notice. In the case of the Irish Home Rule Bill, instructions were given to preserve in express words the supremacy of the British Parliament in order to pledge Ireland to an express admission of that supremacy by the same vote which accepted local powers. It is true that the wording by the draftsman of the sentence reserving the supremacy of Parliament was justly found fault with as inaccurate and doubtful, but that defect would have been cured by an amendment in committee. And, even if there had not been any such clause in the bill, it is clear from what has been said above that the imperial legislature could not, if it would, renounce its supremacy or abdicate its sovereign powers. The executive government in Ireland was continued, in the Queen, to be carried on by the Lord Lieutenant on behalf of Her Majesty, with the aid of such officers and council as to Her Majesty might from time to time see fit. Her Majesty was also a constituent part of the legislature, with power to delegate to the Lord Lieutenant the prerogative of sending to or dissenting from bills, and of summoning, proroguing, and dissolving Parliament. Under these provisions the Lord Lieutenant resembled the governor of a colony with responsible government. He was invested with a double authority, first imperial, secondly local. As an imperial officer, he was bound to veto any bill injuriously affecting imperial interests, or inconsistent with general imperial policy. As a local officer, it was his duty to act in all local matters, according to the advice of his council, whose tenure of office depended on their being in harmony with, and supported by, a majority of the Legislative Assembly. Questions relating to the constitutionality of any particular law were not left altogether to the decision of the Governor. If a bill containing a provision infringing imperial rights passed the legislature, its validity might be decided 
in the first instance by the ordinary courts of law, but the ultimate appeal lay to the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, and, with a view to secure absolute impartiality in the committee, it was provided that Ireland should be represented on that body by persons who either were or had been Irish judges. Not the least important provision of the bill, as respects the maintenance of imperial interests, was the continuance of imperial taxation. The customs and excise duties were directed to be levied, as heretofore, in pursuance of the enactments of the imperial parliament, and were accepted from the control of the Irish legislature, which had full power, with that exception, to impose such taxes in Ireland as they might think expedient. The bill further provided that neither the imperial taxes of excise nor any local taxes that might be imposed by the Irish legislature should be paid into the Irish exchequer. An imperial officer, called the Receiver-General, was appointed, into whose hands the produce of every tax, both imperial and local, was required to be paid, and it was the duty of the Receiver-General to take care that all claims of the English exchequer, including especially the contribution payable by Ireland for imperial purposes, were satisfied before a farthing found its way into the Irish exchequer for Irish purposes. The Receiver-General was provided with an imperial court to enforce his rights of imperial taxation, an adequate means for enforcing all imperial powers by imperial civil officers. The bill did not provide for the representation of Ireland in the imperial parliament on all imperial questions, including questions relating to imperial taxation, but it is fully understood that in any bill which might hereafter be brought forward relating to home rule, those defects would be remedied. An examination, then, of the Home Rule Bill, that child of revolution and parent of separation, appears to lead irresistibly to two conclusions. First, that imperial rights and imperial powers, representation for imperial purposes, imperial taxation, in short, every link that binds a subordinate member of an empire to its supreme head, have been maintained, unimpaired and unchanged. Secondly, that, in granting Home Rule to discontented Ireland, that form of responsible government has been adopted which, as Mr. Merrivale declares, and his declaration subsequent events have more than verified, when conferred on the discontented colonies, changed restless aspirations for separation into quiet loyalty. That such a bill as the Home Rule Bill should be treated as an invasion of imperial rights is a proof of one, or perhaps of both, the following axioms, that bills are never read by their accusers, and that party spirit will distort the plainest facts. The union of Great Britain and Ireland was not, as far as imperial powers were concerned, disturbed by the bill, and an Irishman remains a citizen of the British Empire under the Home Rule Bill, with the same obligations and the same privileges on the same terms as before. All the bill did was to make his Irish citizenship distinct from his imperial citizenship, in the same manner as the citizenship of a native of the state of New York is distinct from his citizenship as a member of the United States. Now it has been found that the central power in the United States has been more than a match for the state powers, and it can be conceived for a moment that the imperial power of Great Britain should not be a match for the local power of Ireland, a state which has not one-seventh of the population or one-twentieth part of the income of the dominant community. One argument remains to be noticed which the opponents of Home Rule urge as absolute condemnatory of the measure, whereas, 
if properly weighed, it is conclusive in its favour. Home rule, they say, is a mere question of sentiment. National aspirations are the twaddle of English enthusiasts who know nothing of Ireland. What is really wanted is the reform of the land law. Settle the agrarian problem. The home rule may be relegated to the place supposed to be paved with good intentions. The Irish will straight away change their character and become a law-abiding, contented, loyal people. Be it so. But suppose it is proved that the establishment of an Irish government, or, in other words, home rule, is an essential condition of agrarian reform, that the latter cannot be had with the former. Surely home rule should stand none the worse, in the estimation of its opponents, if it not only secures a safe basis for putting an end to the agrarian exasperation, but also gratifies the feeling of the Irish people, as expressed by the majority of its representatives in Parliament. Now, what is the nature of the Irish land question? This we must understand, before considering the remedy. In Ireland, meaning by Ireland that part of the country which is in the hands of tenants, and falls within the compass of a land bill, the tenure of land is wholly unlike that which is found in the greater part of England. Instead of large farms in which the landlord makes all the improvements, and the tenant pays rent for the privilege of cultivating the land, and receives the produce, small holdings are found in which the tenant does the improvements, if any, and pays a fixed rent charge to the owner. In England the tenant does not perform the obligations, or in any way aspire to the character of owner. If he thinks he can get a cheaper farm, he quits his former one, regarding his interest in the land as a mere matter of pounds, shillings and pence. Not so the Irish tenant. He has made what he calls improvements. He claims a quasi-ownership in the land, and has the characteristic Celtic attachment for the patch of ground forming his holding, however squalid it may be, however inadequate for his support. In short, in Ireland there is a dual ownership, that of the proprietor, who has no interest in the soil so long as the tenant pays his rent and fulfils the conditions of his tenancy, and that of the tenant, who, subject to the payment of his rent and performance of the fixed conditions, acts, thinks and carries himself as the owner of his holding. A system, then, of agrarian reform in Ireland resolves itself into an inquiry as to the best mode of putting an end to this dual ownership, that is to say, of making the tenant the sole proprietor of this holding, and compensating the landlord for his interest in the ownership. The problem is further narrowed by the circumstance that the tenant cannot be expected to advance any capital or pay an increased rent, so that the means of compensating the landlord must be found out of the existing rent. The plan adopted in Mr Gladstone's land bill was to commute the rent charges, offering the landlord, as a general rule, 20 years purchase on the net rental of the estate, that is to say the rent received by him after deducting all outgoings, and paying him the purchase money in £3 stock taken at par. The stock was to be advanced by the English government to an Irish State Department at 3 and 8 per cent interest and the bill provided that the tenant, instead of rent, was to pay an annuity of £4 per cent on a capital sum equal in amount to 20 times the gross rental. The notable feature which distinguished this plan from all other schemes was the security given by the repayment of the purchase money. Hitherto, the English government has lent the money directly to the landlord or tenant, and has become the mortgagee of the land. In other words, has become, in effect, the landlord of the land sold to the tenant, 
until the repayment of the loan has been completed. To carry into effect under such a system any extensive scheme of agrarian reform, and if not extensive such a reform would be of no value in pacifying Ireland, presupposes a readiness on the part of the English government to become virtually the landlord of a large portion of Ireland, with the attendant odium of absenteeism and alien domination. Under a land scheme such as that of 1886, all these difficulties would be overcome. The Irish, not the English government, would be the virtual landlord. It would be the interest of Ireland that the annuities due from the tenants should be regularly paid, as, subject to the prior charge of the English exchequer, they would form part of the Irish revenues. The cardinal difference, then, between Mr Gladstone's scheme and any other land scheme that has seen the light is this, that in Mr Gladstone's scheme the English loans would have been lent to the Irish government on the security of the whole Irish revenues, whereas in every other scheme they have been lent by the English government to the Irish creditors on the security of individual patches of land. The whole question, then, of the relation between home rule and agrarian reform may be summed up as follows. Agrarian reform is necessary for the pacification of Ireland. Agrarian reform cannot be efficiently carried into effect without an Irish government. An Irish government can only be established by a Home Rule Bill. Therefore a Home Rule Bill is necessary for the pacification of Ireland. It is idle to say, as has been said on numerous platforms, that plans no doubt can be devised for agrarian reform without Home Rule. The Irish revenues are the only collateral security that can be obtained for loans of English money, and the Irish revenues are only available for the purpose on the establishment of an Irish government. Baronial guarantees, union guarantees, county guarantees, debenture schemes have all been tried and found wanting, and vague assertions as to possibilities are idle unless they are based on intelligible working plans. The foregoing arguments will be equally valid if, instead of making the tenants peasant proprietors, it were thought desirable that the Irish state should be the proprietor and the tenants be the holders of the land at perpetual rents and subject to fixed conditions. Again, it might be possible to pay the landlords by annual sums instead of capital sums. Such matters are really questions of detail. The substance is to interpose the Irish government between the tenant and the English mortgagee and to make the loans general charges on the whole of the Irish government revenues as paid into the hands of an imperial receiver, instead of placing them as special charges, each fixed on its own small estate or holding. The fact that Mr Gladstone's land scheme was denounced as confiscation of a hundred million pounds of the English taxpayers' property, while Lord Ashbourne's act is pronounced by the same party wise and prudent, shows the political blindness of party spirit in its most absurd form. Lord Ashbourne's Act requires precisely the same expenditure to do the same work as Mr Gladstone's bill requires, but in Mr Gladstone's scheme the whole Irish revenue was pledged as collateral security, and the Irish government was interposed between the ultimate creditor and the Irish tenant, while under Lord Ashbourne's Act the English government figures without disguise as the landlord of each tenant, exacting a debt which the tenant is unwilling to pay as being due to what he calls an alien government. An endeavour has been made in the preceding pages 
to prove that home rule in no respect infringes on imperial rights or imperial unity for the simple reason that the imperial power remains exactly in the same position as it was before the home rule bill dealing only with local matters at all events burke thought that the imperial supremacy alone constituted a real union between england and ireland he says my poor opinion is that the closest connection between great britain and ireland is essential to the well-being i've almost said to the very being of the three kingdoms for that purpose i humbly conceive that the whole of the superior and what i shall call imperial politics ought to have its residence here and that ireland locally civilly and commercially independent ought politically to look up to great britain in all matters of peace and war in all these points to be joined with her and in a word with her to live and to die how strange to burke would have seemed the doctrine that the restoration of a limited power of self-government to ireland excluding commerce and excluding all matters not only imperial but those in which uniformity is required should be denounced as a disruption of the empire it remains to notice one other charge made against the gladstonian home rule bill namely that of impairing the supremacy of the british parliament that allegation has been shown also to be founded on a mistake next it is said that the gladstonian scheme does not provide securities against executive and legislative oppression the answer is complete the executive authority being vested in the queen it will be the duty of the governor not to allow executive oppression still more it will be his duty to veto any act of legislative oppression further it is stated that difficulties will arise with respect to the power of the privy council to nullify unconstitutional acts but it is hard to see why a power which is exercised with success in the united states where all the states are equal and without dispute in our colonies which are all dependent should not be carried into effect with equal ease in ireland which is more closely bound to us and more completely under our power than the colonies are or than the several states are under the power of the central government to conclude the cause of irish discontent is the conjoint operation of the passion for nationality and the vicious system of land tenure and the scheme of the irish home rule bill and the land bill removes the whole fabric on which irish discontent is raised the irish by the great majority of their representatives have accepted the home rule bill as a satisfactory settlement to the nationality question the british parliament can through the medium of the home rule bill and the establishment of an irish legislature carry through a final settlement of agrarian disputes with less injustice to individuals than could a parliament sitting in dublin and be it added with scarcely any appreciable risk to the british taxpayer of course it may be said that an irish parliament will go farther that home rule is a step to separation and a reform of the land laws a spoliation of the landlords to those who word such arguments i would recommend the perusal of the speech of burke on conciliation with america and especially the following sentences substituting ireland for the colonies but the colonies ireland will go further alas alas when will this speculating against fact and reason end what will quiet these panic fears which we entertain of the hostile effect of a conciliatory conduct is it true that no case can exist in which it is proper for the sovereign to accede to the desires of his discontented subjects 
Is there anything peculiar in this case to make it a rule for itself? Is all authority, of course, lost when it is not pushed to the extreme? Is it a certain maximum that the fewer causes of discontentment are left by government, the more the subject will be inclined to resist and rebel? End of section 8 Recording by James Chute